Welcome to Rise Smile Films, the film review podcast that mixes cinema with fine spirits. Journey with us as we encounter new, old, and strange films with the occasional dabble into sports and music. Proceed with caution as these podcasts feature spoilers and some mature language. This is Matt. And this is Jesse. Today on tap, we have It Follows, starring Micah Monroe, Keir Gilchrist, and Daniel Zavato. Written and directed by David Robert Mitchell. Welcome back to Rye Smile Films. It's time to continue with some uh, wild card picks. Uh, Dealer's Choice Horror Film Edition. Mm. And this was your pick, so I'll kind of let you just kind of introduce. What did we watch today? This is It Follows. Uh, this is a real sleepy uh, 2014 already. I can't believe this movie's almost nine years old already. Mm-hmm. Uh, showed up on my radar out of nowhere and I think found a less than strong following mostly because it really didn't have much production or advertising behind it. But there's a lot to be said about this type of horror film, sort of the indie backlot micro budget with nobody in it, but based around a high concept idea. So, uh, worked for me in a lot of different ways. And I thought that there were some issues. We've talked about it quite a few times on the show. It's mm-hmm. come up. It was time to do it. So here it is. Great choice. Thanks. Um, doesn't this kind of feel like this is like an A24 movie? For sure. But it's not. It's a latter-day dimension films release, but it kind of has that sleepy indie quality of they really take their time to set things up, and I actually think that works to this film's advantage, and we can talk a little bit about that later, but mm-hmm. uh, great choice. We're going to have a ton to talk about today. Yeah. <laughs> On top of all our other side conversation we were having during the movie, which was fun and wild to say the it's for another show, I'm afraid. <laughs> yeah, for I Smile After Dark. Yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> so this is uh, The Weller, Green Label, Special Reserve, uh, one of our tried and true favorites. True. And I'm going to be getting the next bottle for our next uh, our next three uh, films. So, yeah, okay. yeah, I'll be taking care of that one. All right. Mm-hmm. Excellent. Bulletproof. So let's dive right into our flight question. scale of one to ten how much do you think i like this soundtrack ten <laughs> yes <laughs> you know when we first saw this film mm-hmm. that was the first thing i told my wife is uh it sounds like the soundtrack is john carpenter yeah and i'm gonna call jesse and tell him immediately this is the soundtrack he never did right yeah and it's like right uh, around that time too where we're kind of getting into like feeding that like retro hunger mm-hmm. right mm-hmm. this is right before stranger things and this is right before everything's going to get really synth and retro looking heavy and uh we'll talk a little bit about that today but yeah like the, the that those tones the droning sounds and i think that they work really well in the film but we'll, we'll we'll save that one one of the conversations i'm sure we'll also have is the future of this film and what it looks like post it following right follow it it still follows yeah following yep <laughs> 
any number of ridiculous titles we could put in there, but it kind of, the way it ends, it does set itself up for a natural continuation or mm-hmm. a prequel of sorts. And that's kind of just died on the table, right? I In research or anything, you can't really find any kind of momentum of they're actively still pursuing this idea, right? I, I know we'll get into this as the show progresses today, but it couldn't have been more than like a $7 million movie. I don't know. I think it's $1 million. Okay, so even better. They couldn't have put more than, you know, 50% of that into the production and advertising. And this is micro, micro, micro budget. It had to have had a very ROI just based on the fact that it was only $1 million. Even if it made $17 million, that's, yeah, that's a killing. pretty good, yeah. It's stunning to me that this didn't find some sort of sequels to like, keep this myth going because, boy, there's a lot of meat still on this bone. A lot of gray, yeah. yeah. Even with the way we finished, you know, I don't even know if the story, and we'll get to the swimming pool portion of this, is done yet. Mm-hmm. So... But maybe in some ways, what's left to the imagination is uh, equally interesting because I could see them. And regarding the flight question, I found a couple stories in here that I can't believe were ever even discussion to be made. So yeah. maybe we'll keep this sacred and just leave it alone. Yeah. Maybe. Yeah, maybe. maybe. Sleeping dogs lie is what they say, right? I guess, yeah. Uh, but this prompted a perfect night question of, so you're not restricted to horror. I don't know if I told you that, but hopefully you were able to get out of the genre or stay in horror, whatever. But what's a sequel out there that has been discussed? It's been talked about in the trades. It's been rumored that you just don't think we're ever going to see. Boy, this was one that uh, had several different possibilities. And I'm hoping that of the one that's my honorable mention and the other one, neither one of them are yours. So I'll do the one I'm pretty sure you didn't pick first. And I think we might have the second one. I think it's really interesting that this movie got as close as it did at this actress's career where it was. And then from this point forward with this actress now ascending to the actual director's chair at some point and, and sort of taking on her own company that it still hasn't happened because this is a solid, solid film. This is me- Natalie Portman. Ooh. I got nothing. <laughs> Matilda, the professional part two. Oh, okay. Yeah. I guess it got pretty close. And it was going to be her post, um, you know, the original. Mm-hmm. But when Bassan left the film or left the company to start his own production company, it was in early stages of development and they killed it. That's a film that on someday, if we ever do Precocious Youth or Natalie Portman as Precocious Youth, we could just Coming do. of age. <laughs> yeah, you know, uh, I think that that's certainly one we could discuss. Do you like it? I do. Yeah. I do like that film. You know who's the MVP of that movie? Hmm. Mr. Gary Oldman. <laughs> well, surprise, right? Yeah, right. <laughs> Got close and didn't quite make it. Interesting. So, yeah, it was going to be called Matilda, her name, colon, the professional. So I'd see that. I would, too. Yeah. And uh, Luke Basson has had a pretty interesting career, right? I mean, he really follows that up with the fifth element. And then kind of just languishes with just kind of failed ideas. I mean, he did that horrific Dane DeHaan, Valerian, and the City of a Thousand Whatevers. Mm -hmm. Uh, I think he was also instrumental. Did you ever see, talk about a movie that time has forgotten, 2013, I believe, Guy Pearce, uh, Maggie Grace. It's uh, called Lockout. Mm -mm. And it's essentially Escape from New York in Space to the Mm -hmm. point where Carpenter and his management like sued this production. 
Really? It's the same movie. Wow. And he, Guy Pierce plays like the Snake Plissken element, but that was another Luc Besson venture of sorts. Huh, no, I didn't know about that. That's a great choice. The uh, one final point on that. It sort of was revived with Zoe Saldana a little bit later in Colombiana, mm, mm, mm-hmm. a panned film that is terrible. Yeah. So I guess it sort of saw the light of day, but it didn't see in its original state the way it was because like when Bassan left to form his own company, they just decided it wasn't going to be the way they had originally planned. And I think we all missed out. Do you think there's a slim possibility we could still see this movie? Well, can't you see her now? Yeah. I Playing that role <clears throat> now as, you know, Natalie Portman's got to be 40? 40, 41, yeah. Sure. Uh, I think that this story picking up at this point in her life boy could be filled with lots and lots of regret and anger and tread on the tires but her taking on some youth for the tutelage the way that happened in the original it could be cool to see her as like a single mom yeah still taking on these professional hit duties and she's like really good at it at this point right Mm -hmm. and then is she passing that on to her child yeah Probably not. She probably wants to keep them out of that life, but it's what's saving them like in these horrible situations. Like mm-hmm. I can see that whole movie. Yeah, me too. It would be really good. Very high concept. Okay. Uh, I'll go first and then we'll want to hear some of your honorable mentions. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think another movie, much like yours, that I don't think people realize it was as close to reality as possible, but I think I think the, it's the, the horse has left the barn. Is that the expression? Yeah. I'm going to go Gladiator 2. Yeah. Uh, this is, uh, yeah, and it sounds ridiculous, right? Because how does Gladiator end? I mean, Maximus Decimus Meridius is killed. So how do you continue this story? And there's been so many versions of it where it continues with Maximus and his son, which I guess they decided his illegitimate son was Lucius, uh, boy from Unbreakable, mm-hmm. in that movie. And so that's a whole other thing they could have gotten into. But Nick Cave, of all people, came yep. in and did another rewrite where... It's Maximus through through time. You, you got to listen to this. So the premise involved the Maximus in purgatory, mm-hmm. resurrected uh, as a warrior for the Roman gods. Yep. And he's sent to uh, stop the momentum of Christianity by killing Jesus. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then he's tricked into murdering his own, son, his own son, cursed forever. And then it takes him through the Crusades, World War II, Vietnam, and then ends with Maximus, like a version of him working for the Pentagon. I mean, that movie sounds bananas <laughs> so maybe it's a good thing that it kind of didn't happen but like man really scott he's like he was gonna do it and russell crowe was gonna come back like they had like all the same pieces from which i really like gladiator by the way they were gonna come back and do this wild movie which i just think the i think crow's too old for it when we saw him in thor love and thunder right yeah i don't know if we're gonna get the same maximus but i think it was a lot closer than people realized to and I would hope they'd come up with a better title than Gladiator 2, right? You would think. <laughs> you know what's interesting about this this era of Ridley Scott? This fascination that he has with Jesus. Mm-hmm. We've talked about the prequel to Alien. Um, Kingdom of Heaven. And I was going to say Kingdom of Heaven, which had Russell Crowe in it, right? Mm-hmm. Oh, no, Moses. That Moses. Well, that's Christian Bale. Yeah, he has the most oh, movie right. with uh, Exodus, Gods and Kings. Okay, but still, right? So that's all Scott. Mm-hmm. So he's moving into that really interesting secular take on non-secular sort of tomes. Maybe, maybe he has some stuff he's trying to work through. Right? <laughs> yeah. I mean, if the alien is on Earth in some manner because yeah. Christ was killed, 
I just, yeah, he's really, uh, yeah, like you said, maybe really working through some issues mm -hmm. that he and his savior are still struggling with, I guess. I don't know. Very interesting. Mm -hmm. um, I'm glad that movie never saw the light of day. Yeah. Because that, I think, would have been bananas at best. And if anything, it probably hurts the legacy of Gladiator mm -hmm. itself that they're like kind of lopping on this other addition to the story. But it just anything I've read about it and I've heard like some kind of more long snippets of people reading from the screenplay of that particular story. And it, it sounds just, it's the complete opposite of what gladiator was. It sounds like a crazy movie. Crazy. Yeah. I know you've got some honorable mentions. Yeah. You go first. I have two. Mm -hmm. First one is the sequel to seven, eight. Mm -hmm. So in this, it was supposed to be Somerset back, obviously, but imbued with telekinetic or, um, pre-cognitive abilities to chase down another serial killer. So they imbue Morgan Freeman with a supernatural skill set to make him supernatural oh, we stop. We detective gotta, cop. We gotta, we gotta chill out. That's crazy. <laughs> what oh, that, that, That's so far from what that first concept that's was. That's absurd, yeah. Uh, I don't even know how I would want to see Morgan Freeman gain those abilities, but that just in itself is an absurd idea that's the crux of you buying any other piece going forward. Yikes. You know these studio execs have these conversations with any successful film about, okay, how do we do more, right? Mm -hmm. How do we continue and churn the train along? One I had that I found that I don't know if I want to see, this is a fun, just wacky movie, but Con Air, there was a sequel mm -hmm. potential called Con Airport or some shit. God, yeah. <laughs> but I don't know, maybe some more Nicolas Cage antics. Uh, I'd, I'd be maybe down for that. Um, you know, I always kind of toy around with what would a sequel to the original Black Christmas look like if done tactfully, uh, not the way these latter two remakes have kind of treated that material. But again, I don't know if I want to harm the legacy of what I already think is a pretty perfect movie. So, mm -hmm. um, yeah, that's what I got. The one, the final one I'll mention is Double V Vega. Mm. So this was supposed to be the collision of Pulp Fiction and Reservoir Dogs with the two Vega brothers coming together to uh, whatever, blah, blah, blah. Hitman Adventures, yeah. I think that actually could have been good. Mm -hmm. And I think some of that played out a little bit in Kill Bill. Uh, I think we got with Madsen a possible look into what maybe the Madsen character of the Vega brothers was going to look like. They are officially both Vega brothers. I mean, yeah. that is established. Yeah. So it was there. I got to be honest with you, if done properly, I think I want to see that film. Still? Yeah, I kind of do. I think that I don't want Travolta to be in it now. Well, he would that's troubling. He would have to. Maybe, I don't know, Tarantino has another just magic trick to resurrect his career a third time, right? Well, I mean, it's possible. But uh, any thought to going down that route, uh, Kill Bill Volume 3? Yeah, I read that one too. Uh, yeah, because that feels sort of like an incomplete movie insofar that the last 10 minutes are really rushed. And can, can you, can you kind of see with the emergence of Maya Hawke in Hollywood, the mm -hmm. two of them, mm -hmm. mother and daughter? Yep. But I don't know if I want to, if Tarantino is indeed making a 10th final movie, I don't know if I want it to be territory we've been in, right? Like this is his chance to do something that he hasn't really done before. When we did Once Upon a Time in Hollywood all those many moons ago, I think I had said, like, I kind of want to see him do, like, a horror movie. Yeah. Some sort of supernatural haunted house thing would be really cool. Mm -hmm. But good choices. 
a lot of fun stuff to discuss on that. A lot too. of fun speculation of just like some of these people, man, they're crazy of just thinking, yeah, let's do a sequel to this thing that doesn't have a sequel. I don't think I've ever heard of the premise of eight before. That's stupid. Stupid. <laughs> yeah. Was it going to be Andrew Kevin Walker? Uh, that I don't know. I didn't get into that. I'm not sure how far the production down the production line this got. I do know that there are rumored scripts that you can read mm. uh, if you dig deep enough, but that's a rabbit hole into itself. We we'll talk about another guy could, that could never kind of figure it out again after that one, right? We've talked about that script. Have, have you ever sat down and, and read any piece of that? Some of it, and I've in particular read the end pages. And it's that's a whole different kind of writing. Mm-hmm. I think Andrew Kevin Walker was way, way too talented at prose to be <clears throat> writing screenplays. And I think that might be part of the problem. But yeah, that's a really quiet name after mm-hmm. an amazing story from... I think Sleepy Spec. Hollow, the Tim Burton one after that, it's maybe kind of the most high-profile thing of all that. But great choices. I love your choices. I want to actually, I want to see Matilda. Uh, yeah. Uh, and we'll dive right into our review breakdown of It Follows. Hey. Are you okay? Yeah. You need some help? No. I'm fine, Dad. What's the matter? What's going on? So when I saw it all those years ago for the first time, that was the moment in the soundtrack when she comes back out of the house uh, and it goes, bum, bum, bum. I was like, I was like, I think I'm going to like this movie. Just like everything, the vibe that that scene was given off and the synth score, it definitely gave me Carpenter vibes. It's like this film that he just like never got to make. Right. Right. Uh, and I was, I was in, I was like, buckle up. I'm ready for the next hour and 40 and whatever is going to be here. This is, should be a very interesting ride, but mm-hmm. This opening scene, we talked a little bit about it off mic, I think is really excellent. Uh, the first thing, I think they get a lot of just suspense built up over why this girl in the middle of this suburban street is acting so weird. And the thing that always trips me out is the high heels, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, you mm-hmm. put on like the closest thing you have to because now you're on chase. And I guess, yeah, you'd probably rather be running in high heels than your bare feet. But man, one wrong land on that and she's breaking an ankle yeah what do you kind of think of this setup it's just it's all in just a very interesting surveillance like uh rotating 360 camera of just following her around this little kind of subsection here but man does it not set the tone of what we're about to to be into here for the duration of the film Watching it this time through, what really struck me is the very deliberate course that she takes mm. that buys her just enough time to get whatever she needs to get back in the house and out before the thing tracks her down again. Trying to like just run around it. Yeah. And it's almost like whatever path she takes, it follows the exact same path. Mm-hmm. 
this starts to pose some pretty interesting questions. And number one is, how long has this thing been following her? As we get a little bit later into it, who gave it to her? I think we get some answers with that. And number three, how important the ability to travel is. In a sense, this plays, I think, a little bit, the movie does, a little bit in the same space that zombies do. Yeah. Plotting, but after you regardless. Mm -hmm. Uh, The question that I always have with this film is, if you can isolate yourself from the rest of society, i.e. on a boat at sea, or uh, in a plane across the country, can the thing that is chasing you make it through the water to get you, or does it have to travel by foot? And if so, what if you cross oceans? Mm -hmm. That's a really interesting question. I don't know if it's answered, but it certainly, it leads to your, your flight question. Yeah. Boy, there's sure a lot to discuss on this, but namely with this opening sequence, the panic that this girl is, is constantly existing in. Um, and then also because she's so young, and this is also, I think what you just were alluding to the unpreparedness for whatever it was she did that left her in the state. Because if you're running from this thing, uh, give me a pair of Adidas, not high heels. Yeah, absolutely. And a better clothes than I think what her slip was, or maybe her underwear that she was just sort of getting ready in or nighty. (laughs) Kind of. That's what it looks like. Uh, you know, that she, it almost is like it came to the door is yeah. like knocking on her bedroom and she's like, Oh my God. It just like got out of the house as fast as she could. Right. Yeah. They could have put her in anything, Jesse, mm-hmm. and they could have put her in a robe and there's certainly no issues with having lots of naked people in this. Now it's not normally the person who's being chased, Yeah, but as this movie does have a very heavy sexual theme and the price you pay for having sex is readily apparent in this. Mm -hmm. I think it's interesting that even in her innocent trying to get away ingenue state, those red heels still kind of sex her up a little bit. It's the movie basically saying, and maybe in a Janet Lee sort of psycho manner, Mm -hmm. we're going to put you in black underwear when you're having this midday afternoon affair with Mm -hmm. John Gavin, but that's not the worst you can do. The worst you can do is steal this money. Yeah. In this case, you're going to have to pay for the price that you paid, but the movie poses a question, is the price you paid because now you're stupid after you've had sex, or is the price that you're paying because you were stupid to Mm. have sex? Could be a little bit of both, right? Loaded question. Yeah. And then, you know, and then uh, the director, David Robert Mitchell, I mean, he follows us up with a moment that I think would make Hitchcock really proud, which is, you know, she backs herself up against this lake, this pond, whatever kind of makes a final call home because she maybe is already admitting defeat or doesn't know what's going to happen here. Kind of calls and says her goodbyes. And then we do a quick flash cut to the aftermath the next morning. Mm-hmm. And man, she's been torn apart. I mean, legs bent backwards, bones protruding. And to the audience, I think this is really smart because it lets us in on how dangerous it is. It's yeah. <laughs> <clears throat> how dangerous it is and what it can do to the body. So later in the film, when you would normally gawk and laugh at, oh, it's just a crusty old woman chasing me. I was like, no, I've seen what this old woman can do, man. This is going to turn me into a pretzel. Mm-hmm. I think it's really smart. And then so then when we start following Jay, like we're kind of really worried for her, I think, as an audience, not really knowing 
A, is she going to be able to outlast this thing? And then B, if she does let her guard down, that's the fate that waits her, which is on the shore of that little pond, right? Mm-hmm. I think it's a great opening. I mean, this is like th- three minutes, maybe two and a half minutes. This is a great opening scene for this film. To following the rules of traditional screenwriting, mm-hmm. a hundred page script that in the first three minutes really let us know what the stakes are. Mm-hmm. To that, yeah, because now we have a nice backdrop with which to learn about Jay. Yeah. They wouldn't show you that unless it was in play for the main character. Otherwise that would be, I don't know, the trailer for paranormal activity three or something. Oh gosh. <laughs> right. Yeah. So bloody giving us Mary, bloody Mary. Yeah. <laughs> Shit. I mean, Toby, yeah. it's Toby, not blood. Actually, it's not even that. It's just a bunch of coven of witches. I think, um, meeting Jay in that manner is, a fantastic open. Now that we've had a couple in the last mm, two or three months, great openings to film that maybe didn't deliver. So yep. let's see if this one can live up to the hype. Yeah. You're right. We're going to spend a decent amount of time here. And something I've always really noticed about this film on top of all that's great synth music that it's really setting a vibe and a tone for me is how purposefully dated or retro the film looks without being mm-hmm. set in that decade. Yeah. Like, I always try to pinpoint, like, what year is this supposed to be here? Or is Detroit just so antiquated that they're just so behind the times? It feels like 1987. It does, but you have, like, weird instances of technology. Like, the girl talking on her cell phone at the beginning, this weird clamshell Kindle thing. Like, that thing's fucking weird. Mm-hmm. Uh, but then the, the, all these kids are watching, like, these old B. Ed Wood films, sci-fi films on TV, just, like, just chilling on the couch. There's an organist at the movie theater. Like, there's just some things about this. That's that showing just, charade, of all things. Yeah, charade, yeah, with Cary Grant and Hepburn. Bizarre, right? Yeah. And it kind of just kind of throws you for a loop a little bit, and I wonder if some of that is definitely, like, this film has no budget, so we have to watch domain films, right? Um, but it kind of makes it feel a little more bizarre than uh, than intended. And then you couple that with its synth-heavy music, and it, it's, it's a film that feels out of time, but then it... When they're panning through Detroit and Eight Mile and the suburbs, and then when they do sneak into the city, it does feel very contemporary. It does feel like a region that's been hit hard by economic times, right? Mm-hmm. So I don't know. I don't know what I'm trying to say here. Is just aesthetically, I think it's an interesting way to kind of go about it. I'm always kind of against, you know, films being dated. Like the one thing that really drives me nuts in TV and films now is the text bubbles on mm-hmm. screen where someone's texting and it's like, like, man, like in 20 years when we're like not texting anymore and we're just doing some other weird form of communication, like that's going to look so strange when we watch those old movies. But like here, that's not really there. The phones and uh, technology are present, but everything just has this old look to it. Even their televisions, their tube televisions. Yeah. What do you think of that? It's, uh, it's just kind of a mechanism. I mean, it's not part of the story. It's just part of the feel of this thing. I've made it really clear to you that I think... Stranger Things is one of the biggest ripoff jobs in the history of modern fiction. Mm-hmm. And I don't know if those people involved with, what are those two brothers' name? The, the Duffers, yeah. The Duffer brothers. I've never seen or read anything by them as insofar as what inspirations were, but I bet you dollars yeah. that this movie plays into that. Because I think this does organically what that movie tries so hard to do and comes across is just kitschy to me. Mm-hmm. Instead of using Kate Bush and we're running up a hill and a song that no one liked ever. Yeah. 
let's just do our own synth music. Yeah. And what it did is maybe it's budgetary mm-hmm. because that was things that they had and they could just put them in the set. Yeah. But it gives them a feeling of incapability because I think there is a, a, a thread of impoverishment that kind of weaves through this group. Mm. So they can't buy their way out of it. And second, well, an eight mile too. So, mm-hmm. I mean, it's not a very yeah. lucrative suburban elite area. Yeah. But what it does is it closes things down. Um, I was thinking about the X-Files a little bit. Okay. In the X-Files, Mulder and Scully's greatest weapons were cell phones. I thought that that TV show used them really well early on in the cell phone game. Not mm-hmm. super early on, but fairly early on. Yeah. You can compare that to the jokes that are made in Sarah Marshall about the what cell would you, phone. Let me do it. What would you do if your mobile phone killed you? <laughs> yes, Aldous. Yeah. This somehow takes all of that, when, with the exception of that Kindle clam-shaped compact that the one friend is reading, removes all of it mm-hmm. and gets down to just brace, base, brassy, grainy, hard labor living. Yeah. Hard labor. Yeah. This is, we're not even in middle class. This is upper, lower class. Maybe. I never thought about that like that. These group of kids, the mother who becomes an absentee parent later on in this film. Yeah. Dad's dead out of the picture. Yep. They are really struggling to get by, right? Well, and if you think about it, if you don't have a lot of money for entertainment yeah. and you can't go to the amusement park or the movies or what vacation, one of the things that's relatively cheap entertainment is physical. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. If you're not working, if you don't have a lot to do and you're in the proximity of other people, Mother Nature is going to run her course. Yeah, And I think that creates an even more loaded situation because there is so much time on their hands and so little parental involvement or oversight, Mm -hmm. these kids are going to end up in the sack. You know what I really like about it too? And it just kind of feeds my little amateur filmmaking sensibilities, which is you want to give these kids and the parents and something when there is action in the scene, you want them doing something right. So you have, yeah, an old movie on the tube. Uh, You have like all these old things reading from this thing. They're eating sandwiches and if you pay attention to the dialogue, it is fairly simplistic and like surface level shallow, but like that's the, it, it reminds me of the kind of things that I would try and do like when making little movies, right? Mm-hmm. You want to have these characters busy doing something. So um, I like that it's these methods. Yeah, yeah, you would try and have them watch a movie, but you can't pay for the movie. So they're watching this old thing that they would have, they would, they would not be watching that. Mm-hmm. But as part of the charm of this thing, like we're stuck in a, like a weird time capsule uh, thing, but then yeah, when we're gonna enter the physical, uh, yeah, I think we're gonna have some uh, pretty interesting moments here. Okay, my turn. Okay, okay got it. What about the girl in the yellow dress? Where? Right there. That's here. Right there. 
Are you teasing me? I'm sorry, I just, I don't... I don't see what you're talking about. Can we about. go? I'm sorry, I just, I just don't feel well. Can we, can we go back to the car? I don't want to call the film slow burn, but it does have that kind of we're building to something slowly and really holding our cards, you know, close to the chest. We don't want to like reveal everything so soon, but in a moment like this, where our character starts acting really weird about someone that's obviously not there and is so bent out of shape about it. That he's like, well, we just got to leave, right? We got to abandon watching charade <laughs> Poor them, right? <laughs> yeah. We got to just get out of here. I think we're really setting the stakes for, gosh, this thing is okay. We're so scared of it. We got to just leave whatever we're doing, act like a weirdo and be physically. We saw what this thing was able to do to a girl. I like it. It's, it's horror on a minimalist level, right? We're really not showing much. We're really kind of just setting a tone and letting the audience really think about, gosh, well, what is this thing? What is this thing going to do? Where did it come from? Like, how did this start? And I, I just think we're in really creative territory right now. Presented with the problem of having no money to make this movie, mm-hmm. one of the things that's fairly absent from it is any special effects. There's yeah. a few moments, but mostly it's very little. Yeah. Maybe the pool scene might be the most special effect heavy moment. Mm-hmm. But... In this particular case, it works really, really well because the fact that that guy, I forget what that guy's name is. Hugh? I think it might be Hugh. Yeah. Is the only one that can see this girl in the green, in this yellow dress creates a couple of questions. Number one, is Jay going to think this guy is sane? Number two, do we think this guy is sane? Not after that, man. Not after that. That'd be weird. (laughs) And number three, it allows you to believe that this person is sort of in this by themselves. Yeah. If you can't even share what you see because no one else can see it, you really are alone. Or would believe you, right? And the only way to, and we're going to get to this in just, I think in probably just a minute. And the only way to allow somebody else to see it is to bestow upon them the same curse that's been bestowed upon you. And that comes with a heavy price because it's literally your mm. mortality. Yeah. It's not just the ability to see the thing. It's that's now you can see it because it's coming to break you in half, mm-hmm. snap you like a twig. Yeah. According to what we saw with that first girl on the beach. Yikes, man. Yeah. So these two hook up eventually. I think she does really like him. Their locale of hooking up though. <laughs> it's just, Ready for Alex Murphy to get shot out over here, man. It looks like the abandoned silo in RoboCop, right? Right. Sure <laughs> Jeez, does. I mean, it doesn't look romantic, but I think she is really into this. Jay's really into to Hugh here. And for Hugh, this is just like, oh, my gosh. Like, I have I have a chance. In his instinct, he's doing it for survival, right? He's actually very remorseful about afterwards. I'm sorry. I'm not going to hurt you. I didn't mean to do this, but it was my only chance. And she's just like, oh, my God, like, what the hell is going on here? Somebody gave it to me. And I passed it to you. Back in the car. It could look like someone you know. Or it could be a stranger in a crowd. Whatever helps it get close to you. It could look like anyone. There's only one of it. Help! Help! Sometimes 
Sometimes I think it looks like people you love just to hurt you. On a surface level, any film viewer with any kind of sense in their brain can read into this plot and be like, well, this is a very heavy-handed message about the transference of bodily fluids, but also sexually transmitted diseases. I think they're called STIs now, or HIV AIDS, right? STI? Yeah, sexually transmitted infection, I mm-hmm. believe. They're just whatever. <laughs> but... uh I think they're really, this film, it feels like a film that would have been made in the 80s, right? I mean, this, like, specter slasher ghost that hunts you if you've had sex. And it's, obviously, it's this is like Cronenberg in the fly, like, that HIV AIDS thing that, like, if you get this thing, it's going to change your body and it's going to do damage to it. The thing has this mentality too, right? Fluids in the blood and all the contaminated blood and everything. I mean, we're, we're really cooking with a lot of that stuff here. And I think it really works here. Would you call this a slasher film? Mm, I guess I hadn't thought about that, but yes. I think I would too. And again, it's more spec- spectrally and omnipresent with these ghouls and followers, but interesting way to do it about like, I passed it on. I Someone passed it to me. I passed it on to you. Just go ahead and pass it on to someone else and you should be okay. Uh we know the rules, right? I mean, like mm-hmm. we, we love scenes that establish it's going to look like someone you know. It could look like a stranger, um, but this is how you get rid of it. And if it if it does kill that person, it's coming back to you, and it just kind of follows the line up until it runs its course, right? Yeah. But unfortunately, running its course means it's going to murder all the way down the line, much like a a, a disease like HIV would do to someone, right? I think that's why the 80s feeling in this matters. Mm -hmm. It does play back to that. How can you spread this? How can I get it? And then it plays up one other really important issue, and that's the moral weight of the decision. Yeah. We're going to talk about this with uh, Peter. Is that the last? uh, Paul. Yeah. Which I find to be a truly interesting character name, Mm -hmm. that it's her disciple, Paul. Yeah. If you find someone that likes you enough, that wants to engage in the act of procreation with you, Mm -hmm. then what at face value could be considered a genuine act of, if not long-term, at least short-term affection, is drowned with the knowledge that, although I might share it, and it being affection, what this is really doing is allowing me to give you this terrible burden of relationship that now that we're together, you have to carry for me. Now, let me give you one more thing to think about with that. Yeah. 
if we remove the idea that in this relationship there's this terrible burden that if we're going to be together, you are going to be part of, if we remove the sexually transmitted demonic entity from that, it doesn't sound all that unfamiliar with a lot of long-term relationships once you really get to know someone because none of them are perfect. Yeah. So the moral weight of that is heavy for the characters because we care about them. And its simple solution is just keep your clothes on. But the larger context, especially when we get to the Paul bit a little bit later on, is unless you really want to help that person carry the weight. Mm -hmm. And if they're willing to do it, boy, is that such a reflection upon all of us and the relationships we have with people that we care about. What did they always tell us in health class to scare us out of sex? I always kind of felt like health, especially in middle school, was like really trying to like ward off like, don't ever have sex. Yeah. I was like, is like, a priest teaching this class? What's going on here? Yeah. a nun? Well, in Catholic school right now, but yeah. um, what they would always tell you is like, if you sleep with that person, you're sleeping with all the people they slept with. Mm-hmm. And in this instance, oh my God, that's so true. Right? You are. Yeah. With terrible, terrible consequence. Yeah. Hugh, I really do think like you genuinely likes Jay. Yeah. But he also likes living. Yeah. (laughs) And I think poor Hugh, who admits to her later on that he has got this or acquired this disease from some chick that he picked up at the bar one night. Again, if we remove the demon from that, if we remove this supernatural presence that's coming, do you know how many people, I don't mean, not, not this is a rhetorical question. Yeah. There is a large number of people that share that same story. Yeah. I met this guy at this bar one night. I met this chick at this bar one night. And dot, 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 dot. Yeah. My life is different because of it forever. Yeah. I never would have thought that a movie that is so heavy-handed but subtly heavy-handed, if that's even a thing. Oh, I know exactly what you're meaning, yeah. Subtly heavy-handed about the necessity, the necessity of safe sex could be such an interesting premise for a horror film yet somehow they did it and what i really want to know and yeah, i bet you would know this okay i want to know at what age the writer director Mm -hmm. what's his name david robert mitchell mitchell pinned this script because if he wrote this when he was like 16 17 18 years old not only kudos to him to finish the script at that age but it's even more appropriate in germane now if it's read it when he was 35 it still matters Mm -hmm. But being in the middle of this burden, this this burden of intimacy and everything that goes along with it at that age is very, very telling about maybe what you're saying, Jesse. Mm-hmm. Everybody has freaked me out so much about this. And they're right. That, yeah. that That's right. If you sleep with someone, you're sleeping with everybody that they've slept with. They're right. That's yeah. true. Yeah. It's a 20 for one deal. <sighs> it's loaded. It is. Yeah. And so, so it's like... To, to close this right away. I mean, it's just like, it's you can't tell them about the, the soul-sucking demon, the sex demon, right from the get-go. They're going to think you're crazy, and then you're not going to get to have sex because they're going to leave, right? Right. So you kind of have to play it straight, which is, again, manipulative on another level. But, again, he was doing it to survive. Jay's going to do it later to survive. Oh, man, just like, yeah, we're uh, just in a really interesting territory here. And let's talk about what these followers look like. For the most part, they're in the nude. They're in the buff. And when we usually, like, we've talked about on this podcast of, like, 
nudity and nudity on screen. And in my youth, I mean, I used to watch a movie for two hours if there was like going to be like a, a flash pan of some nudity that I was going to look at. Yeah. And here, I think it is treated so horrifically where yeah. everyone looks and they look abused, whether sexually, <laughs> physically, everyone just looks messed up. And I know they're trying to ghoul them up a little bit. They look like the ghouls from Night of the Living Dead, but... I wonder what kind of trauma that he's trying to also show us too. That is like, are these visages that we're seeing here, are these people that are also fucked up, right? Elder abuse, that old woman, like it's probably a woman that's been like, just like beaten about in her nursing home. Right. Mm -hmm. And then we see the dad a little bit later. And I wonder, well, what happened between them too? Was there some abuse there that isn't talked about? Cause Jay kind of feels like a damaged character before this film even starts. Right. Yeah. And the film, I to its credit, doesn't need to tell us that and doesn't spend the time to explain the origins and why this person, why that, and the little peeping tomboy. What's going on there? And why is he so messed up? Mm -hmm. I don't know. That's one of the reasons why I do particularly like this film. Yeah, it takes, I think, a pretty natural act. Mm -hmm. Okay, so you mentioned the peeping tomboy, and by what I mean by natural act is just the curiosity of the opposite sex and what that looks like. Yeah. It's admitted and discussed and referenced a lot in this movie from Jay and Paul talking about their early adventures with some dirty magazines that they found behind Bob's blah, 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 and looked at them together on the neighbor's lawn to this young boy that is just sort of peeping and curious as to what Jay looks like. What nudity looks like, yeah. To us, mm -hmm. because what I mean by that is when these characters are shown up, with the exception of the old woman, and credit to the director for not putting her all the way down to the pinks, because yeah. I think that would have been exploitative. Mm -hmm. But to show it's scary enough. It is. <laughs> it is. It is. Yeah. She looks like she looks like the female old version of Frankenstein's monster. Yeah. She that is the squarest shouldered woman I've ever laid my eyes on. Mm -hmm. But as we see these forms, these naked forms of these people chasing down their would-be victims, it is the human form in its natural state revealed. And again, it's a great juxtaposition of the desire for intimacy with it and the necessity, I keep struggling with that word today, necessity for it to be naked in order to perpetuate the act. And then post-act, the showing of the same human form in these rather gruesome manners. Well, there is something innately sexual about how the it takes down its victim because when we see it later with yeah. the neighbor boy and his mom, yeah. she's got a tit out and then she mounts her son. And crushes him, right? And As like, she's grinding it. And thrusting him, yeah. And so there's something that's like that happens, that's like the foreplay and then it goes right to the murder, right? Well, that thing that meets, that Jay meets in the kitchen. That's about her age. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's got, I think, one of the breasts revealed as the bra sort of pulled down and those dark, dark circles under her eyes. And yeah, her mouth's, beaten about, mouth's a little bit bloody. To the guy on the roof. That's what I wondered about that. You see, you have all these like bruises and they look like domestic violence victims, these, these, these ghouls. But not everyone looks like that. Mm -hmm. When dad's walking around at the end, he looks fine. Right. So I wonder, the behind the closed doors of all these things that she's seeing that there's a deeper layer of trauma there that we're also alluding to. Well, it's rare. We've talked about Hitchcock in this film. It's rear window. Like yeah. we talked about that on the episode. 
each of those windows possibly, possibly representing another stage of domestication between male and female. Widowed, newlywed, off to work, raising kids, all of those things. And as, as Jimmy Stewart is looking at all of those windows, what he's getting a reflection of is the life that he chose to not engage in because he didn't want that until Lisa Fremont shows up and seduces him with lobsters and, and chiffon or whatever, right? This plays in that same space for me, Hitchcockian, which is if you take a look at the demon that's chasing you, and it can change form like this. If you take a look at the demon that's chasing you and when it approaches you, it is a depiction of a real-life mortal. Yeah. So if it's one breast out and I'm beaten up, it's hard not to go like, Jesus Christ, did somebody rape her to move this thing along? Yeah. And if it's like the old man that's not too old, but like not too old to be like, I guess, sexually enable, but so, older on top of the roof, is that someone that stepped out because he was bored with his role and the relationship and found, you know, Mrs. Tuesday night on the corner of, of fifth and central. So you think all the it's are victims of the, it, but not the little boy, right? I mean, that that's just kind of part of the, the visage, but I think you're also right. I think. Unless. Yeah. Unless it gets to what you said. Yeah. And that brings in another loaded question. The little boy mm-hmm. is a demon. Yeah. And if we follow the rules, the demon does seem to be someone that has had sex before. That, I mean, Jesse. Yeah. I don't even, I mean, you can see where yeah, I'm going with this. I know exactly this. what you're talking about. Yeah. That's a really interesting idea. Yeah. And horrific. And horrific. And I think the David Robert Mitchell's doing it so minimally, right? I mean, it's not a this isn't an overly gruesome movie other than that opening little bit here. And where we're gonna get the whore to come out in these scenes. So we have that bit with her and Paul are talking about their first kiss and he kissed the sister too, and she thought that was weird. And then that took us so we'll we'll get back to Paul and their relationship as well, because it's also so interesting. And man, that took us down a rabbit hole of stuff. Mm-hmm. Yes, it did. <laughs> Let's just say that. But when the ghoul, she locked herself in the room. I'll play the little clip. I think this is really well done. Is something wrong with me? Look, somebody broke the window. That really happened. I saw a girl in the kitchen. Jay, I love you. You're okay. You don't believe me. Mom? Mom, is that you? No, it's me. Yara? Yeah. Don't open the door! See? Everything's okay. This little jump is so well done because we're really building up what's on the other side of the door. We've been able to barricade ourselves here, and if we open it, it's going to come through, right? Uh, and no, it's one of the friends. Why'd you lock me out? Ba-da-da-da-da. 
And then in the darkness there, you have enough time for your eyes to just like focus on something is going to happen. And when it does happen, it doesn't look how you imagine it happens. It's just like seven foot five guy with no eyes or something in a white t-shirt. And man, that's scary. Like that's like just, it's so unnatural of like, he's a weird looking guy already and he shouldn't be in here. He shouldn't be in this space. This is a really, I think it's, it's not like a boo Like it's a like, an evolving kind of jump scare. It takes time to like happen in a strange way. This movie. Yeah. You're that seven foot five guy with the missing eyes is terrifying looking mm-hmm. and they all are really. Yeah. This movie celebrates the human form in two ways, which is how much we desire it, which leads to the act. And secondarily, how grotesque it can become <laughs> yes. when it betrays you. Yeah, exactly. And I think that's fantastic. Yeah. You, how, how gross it can be. Yeah. You weaponize, I guess these kids are maybe like 20, 21, 22. You weaponize these early 20-year-olds mm-hmm. with sexuality. And then you give them, Mitchell gives them these terrible consequences for firing that weapon. It's like giving a chimpanzee a machine gun. Yeah. <laughs> what could possibly go wrong? Yeah. <laughs> and in this case, he doesn't let you off because, oh, the safety was on and we all had on flak jackets or they were by themselves. He doesn't. Mm-hmm. And I think that that is a genius, masterful depiction of something that we all have to routinely engage in. Like we all, we don't have to, I guess, but we all routinely, (laughs) I hope, routinely engage in. Death, eating, sleeping, breathing, procreating, protecting your young, mother needing to be the nurturing influence in the lives of the youth. All of these things are tried and true pieces of our life. And when you can find a way to bastardize that. Yeah, mess them up, yeah. You get true horror. Because there's no avoiding, Jesse, there's no avoiding sex. There's no, well, I, I, there is, but you, you know where I'm going with this. Yeah. So you take, so Mitchell takes this idea, which at its base level is necessary to keep the species going. I know mm-hmm. that that's not why most people do it, but that's like, let's be frank. Like yeah. that is what the, the goal is. Yeah. And then you weaponize it the way they do in this film. Yeah, weaponize it with these kids who don't quite understand exactly, even at this young age, what the consequences are other than in the moment it feels good. <laughs> and there is- Well, they're, they're at an age too where they don't fully understand the act either, right? I right. mean, they're so green in that field because I'm pretty sure Paul's a virgin. I mean, he's just waiting out for Jay, right? Dude, his window's like closed up and yeah. sealed with like, you know- Flexi seal. <laughs> he ain't getting in there. Right. But like, they're so naive about what that even means too. Right. Uh, no, I think we're treating it really well. What do you think this film looks like if Cronenberg makes something like this? Uh, I think it could be done really well. Yeah. There's a piece of this though in um, rabbit. Yeah. Similar. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Not really, but there's, he plays a little bit in the same space mm-hmm. with the infection element. Yeah. And penetration and, the girl that he used to be the infecting agent. Yep. And I think it looks great. Mm-hmm. Subtle works in this space. Um, and the other thing too, that I want to give Mitchell credit for is in a movie that is so sexually charged and so sexually driven, I think the actual act itself is handled in 
a completely not gratuitous way and minimalistic, mm-hmm. if even prevalent at all. I mean, it's almost like seven o'clock TV kind of levels of they're just kissing in bed. Now the scene in the back of the car is a little bit cause she's mm-hmm. kind of rocking around a bit, but not much. But and, even, I don't even know if it's treated romantically. No. It's like, I mean, the, they're on some RoboCop set over there doing that. He, the neighbor boy, has sex with Jay in the hospital bed. That's kind of disgusting. <laughs> then yeah, her and Paul on like a couch later at the end of the film. Or the, and then she's got the guys on the boat. Like there's nothing like romantic or like interesting or fun about it. They're just doing it to do it to get rid of it, right? In Jay's case, does it almost feel rote? Yeah. Boy, that says a lot about her, too. And not to be too on the nose. Well, Jay looks off to the left to make sure it's not going to come through the door while and they're in the middle of it, right? Absent father. Mm-hmm. Completely non-involved mother. I mean, not to go down the the road of here's what you shouldn't do in order to raise kids. Yeah. But I get why Jay's like that. I mean, it would be easy to say, well, if she wasn't such a hoe, maybe she wouldn't make the whole world sick with you know her vagina. Yeah. But I, I understand why she's doing that. Mm-hmm. Like she's got four pretty good friends or three really good friends, mm-hmm. but she doesn't seem like she's fulfilled by any of them. Oh, no. She's such a lonely character in this movie. And that's one thing I wanted to say. Yeah. Talked about the music a little bit. Mm-hmm. I think one of the reasons the music for me is so successful in this is there's so much space, quiet space on the screen in between very sparse lines of dialogue. There's plenty of time to just let this thing smolder and fester and grow on you like moss or an STD. <laughs> Some gonorrhea, man. Uh, yeah. Do we like Micah Monroe in this film? I, I do. I, I told you I thought this was going to send her to the stratosphere, and it just sent her to Independence Day 2 yeah, we and The Watcher. About, yeah, we talked about uh, Independence, Independence Day 2 not being good for anybody involved, right? Did, I mean, doesn't it seem like she's ready? Yeah, right. Uh, she was in another movie I totally forgot about until now, and I can't believe I did because I think it's a pretty good movie that we should actually cover on the show which is the guest with dan stevens mm. another guy who i thought was destined for superstardom after beauty and the beast and yeah he's kind of stalled out too um yeah she's like uh you know what that movie's about is that a horror flick it sounds like yeah it. it's a bit uh, it's uh adam weingard and it's uh this like veteran mm. who like comes and visits his family because he knew the son that died in the war and so he stays with them but man he's all kinds of fucked up, oh, wow. but he's like really good at killing people. He's like John wick level efficiency, killing people, Cool, but he's bad news. Right. And mm-hmm. so she's like the young older sibling in that. And she's like kind of into him. And he's like, this guy's really hot. And mm-hmm. so I've seen her in that film too. That one's, that one's really good, but yeah, you're right. Not like the movie. Not that everyone needs to be in one because this is an, a whole nother bag of fucked right now too, which is Marvel movies. But like if they're like one Marvel movie away from like hitting it big. Right. Yeah. That's the thing. Yeah. But again, not everyone, you don't need to be in those to like make it. It's just, I don't know. Maybe they like making these little indie movies. If I was an actor, like I would kind of like being in these little small, like watcher like this, that would kind of be a nice little career too. But no, I think she's, she, she plays vulnerable. She plays sad. She plays kind of depressed really well mm-hmm. and terrified. I mean, she has this thing that's constantly at her throat. Uh, I'll play the clip now and then we'll, we'll kind of get into the middle of this film. I'm not safe either. Okay. We shouldn't even be in the same place. I'm sorry, you guys need to get the fuck out. Hey, watch it. If it kills her, it gets me. It goes straight down the line to whoever started it. Jay, I'm sorry. I wasn't trying to hurt you. Okay, someone did this to me too. Okay? 
Who did it to you? I met a girl at a bar. It was one night stand. I don't even remember her name. I think that's where it came from. Jeff, I don't believe you. Well, she might. But I think you're a fucking liar. What are you doing to her? Some fucked up shit. Do you guys see that girl right there? Yeah. You know what scene I really like too? I like when Jay sees the old woman fresh from the old folks home mm-hmm. uh, coming to her classroom. It reminded me a lot of Halloween when Jamie sees Michael outside the window. But it's just the, the difference here. And I think, you know, I love the slasher films, Matt. And I know that's not everyone's cup of tea because they are so generic and everything's the same, but whatever. But at the end of the day, you can defeat the beast. You can defeat uh, the prom night killer because he's just a guy, right? We're just going to kill him with an axe. You, supposedly, you can kill Michael Myers and some of these other guys in these slasher films. But something about the it, if this is indeed a slasher film, there's no kill in this thing, right? I mean, and I like that the film doesn't become that. It doesn't become like, how do we go to the root of where this started and try and figure that out? Because that's a film for another day, right? Our flight question. But enough to like keep it at bay. That way we have a fight, a fighter's chance. I really like that. And it makes for a formidable antagonist of, yeah, you can stop it for a week, but it's going to come back. Because, again, you can't tell all the people that you're hooking up with, oh, yeah, now you have a, a demon on your thing and now survive, right? You almost have to slip it in, leave, and then just hope you have enough time to, like, you got you get two weeks, right? Those frat guys, I don't know. I think they got killed instantly because they were so drunk. So <laughs> drunk. Uh, I think that's I think that's horrifying. It's almost a little more horrifying than, like, a Michael Myers, who I know is crazy, has a tangible line of of, of craziness, but we can stop him and maybe put him in the ground, hopefully. Mm-hmm. I don't know how you stop this. Right. It's almost unwinnable. Right. And yeah, so how do you trace it all the way back? I don't know how. Well, and if, okay, let's go back to the line that they, that Hugh says. I got it from his girl. I don't even remember her name that I picked up at the bar one night. I'm going to assume that it's already got her because otherwise it wouldn't be after him yet. So if it got her, then you couldn't even trace it back because you can't get to her to ask who gave it to you before you gave it to me. So it's an inconquerable series of events that you have to reverse engineer that leaves you with one option, Mm -hmm. and that is either constantly stay on the move, which is a possibility, or pass it along to somebody else. Yeah. And that's what the group does here. I mean, for a good portion of the film, they try and put their backs up against it. They go stay at this little, I think of the neighbor boy's mom. This is like their house or whatever, beach property. They're going to hang out here and just try and relax and see if this, and again, the friends aren't really believing Jay, right? I mean, they're like, this is weird. Like you're acting like a weirdo, Um, but they're trying with, they're trying to give her the benefit of the doubt that, okay, we can at least try and help her out, be with her. And this scene on the beach, I think, is also really well done. And this really tripped me out in the theater the first time where they're all sitting on the beach. And at this point, you're trying to account for everybody, right? I mean, you have the her sister sitting on the beach. You have Jay, Paul, and then the neighbor boy. Oh, God, we got to get his name. And he goes to take a piss. And you're like, well, where's the other girl? And then we see someone in the far left corner. We're like, oh, there she is. And then the way Robert Mitchell or David Robert Mitchell reveals 
but oh no, she's wading water in the inner tube on the on the beach. Well, then who the hell's that, right? I mean, it's it's a real slow buildup to a lot of questions that we think get answered, but then we're like, no, that's the it, right? I think that's a really well done scene. What do you think of kind of the the, the beach chaos? I mean, you get one after the other. We get little neighbor boy. We get a, a version of Yara all messed up. Uh, and then she just books it out of there and crashes her car into some corn, but it's kind of it kind of gets fairly chaotic there for a second. She breaks one of the rules that Hugh gives her right away, and mm-hmm. that's never be in a place that doesn't have two exits. Mm-hmm. And what I mean by that is she barricades herself into the beach house with her friends with a very minimalistic door yeah. between her and, and Oblivion. A, and a gun that no one can shoot. Right. Yeah. Yeah, I think it's really well done. I think the showdowns that we get between her and it before the final showdown at the pool are are very effective. And essentially, the same solution is what gets her out of all the early ones, and it's just run. Yeah. It's just run. It's, I, it's, I love all of them, but I know it, this, the beach one's particularly good. And it's weird running, too, because, like, she's running for her life trying to survive, and, like, all her friends are just like, oh, man, like, why she acting so weird, right? Mm-hmm. At what point do you like believe? And I don't know because you can't. They can't see it. You no one else can see it because they're not part of the infection. I think that's. I think that's really interesting and really well done. And then I like the way David Robert Mitchell shoots this next scene here, which is okay. We're at the hospital. She has a concussion and a broken arm now. She's getting all messed up from this it chase, and her and the neighbor boy. I'm going to look up his name because I'm tired of calling him neighbor boy. Greg. Yeah, Greg. Thank you, man. That's the first to that. <laughs> to you. A miracle just happened on this show. Oh, man. That was great. Wow. He, they kind of lock eyes and there's just kind of like this mutual unsaid thing of like, mm-hmm. we're going to fuck. And mm-hmm. like, it's the only solution at this point. I think he's believed, he believes her now. Does he or does he just want to get laid? I don't know. I think he likes her too because they have done it before in, right. in high school. So there's some familiarity there. And so they do it. And I love the way they pan around to like the hospital staff, like not really doing their jobs, the doctor getting off call, someone in the room. The well, they show all the social interactions between like the doctor and that nurse are making time at the lockers. Yeah. What's up with that? <laughs> I think that's great. This isn't Halloween too. It's just like, right. Yeah. And then you get this family like right next to them and then you cut to them and they're like, in bed, like he's already going, and it could not be less romantic, right? Right. It's already a hospital, which is d- disgusting enough as it is. Ugh. But then, like, she's not into it, and because she's just like looking out of the corner of her eye to make sure it doesn't come through the front door. It speaks to both of their desperations in two different ways. One is for someone to help her carry this terrible, terrible, terrible fate that she's been given, and number two. How desperate that guy is to get his rocks off. I know. He's just like, oh, this is a window. (laughs) Think about that, Jesse. Mm -hmm. If you fuck me, Mm -hmm. you are going to be chased by a demon for the rest of your life. And this clown says, I think I'll do it. No, I think you're absolutely right. I'm wrong. He doesn't believe it here. Because later when it does come for him, he's kind of, he's not prepared for what comes to him, right? Yeah, whether whoever's right or wrong, he... He kind of doesn't believe her initially enough to dispel this very basic rudimentary urge that he has. The Paul situation is different. Like I I have a theory on that too. Let's talk about Paul. Let me finish this thought first. If you were presented with whatever 
girl is number one on your fantasy list of all time, and you got the the kitchen pass. Okay. And it was yes, but it comes with this, and that this is a gift that keeps on giving. Demon or STI or STD. Mm-hmm. At eighteen to like twenty four, could that eighteen to twenty four old year old Jesse believe in the consequences of that enough that no. in the throat? <laughs> Right. No, I'm getting killed, man. Do you see what I'm saying? <laughs> yeah. Because we are so dumb yeah. and unable to like kind of manage some of that, those urges. This brings so many issues into play about the, the, the severity of sex. The naivete of the characters usually in horror films is annoying. And it's just like, oh, why would you go there? Why would you do that? But here it's it, it's making it more interesting of it's making them more vulnerable. And for for Gary, it's not even his Selma Hayek. That's my number one. Always has been. Or forever for Jesse, whoever your number one is. Okay. <laughs> it's kind of a, just a townie. Yeah. Mike, Micah Monroe's a nice looking gal, I guess. Yeah. But would I lay down my life for the opportunity for one? I mean, well, I think again, he doesn't know the severity of what it is, which goes to like this whole thing, right? Do you understand what you're doing when you engage in that act? No. And I love that. That is sort of this moral tale that Mitchell is telling without saying what you heard, your version of health class, my version of health class, you're sleeping with them and the other 30,000 people they've slept with, whatever tales of, Fear they try to give you. Yeah. I Loose remember, morals they you, try to bestow on you to keep your clothes on. You know what I remember in health was uh, they had like a diagram of a condom and they were like, these condoms aren't foolproof. Look at all these holes that are in them. And they had a condom at like a microscopic level to let you know that, yeah, if you use them, it's still going to get out. And it's just like, what are you guys doing? What are you doing to us? Uh, what are you doing to us? Yeah. Trying to scare the shit out of you. Just be honest. <laughs> or just show this movie next yeah, time. Yeah, maybe they just show it. It follows an health class. It'd be more entertaining than the diagram you get in the fifth grade of like, yeah, here are the fallopian that, tubes. That weird blown up condom I saw in seventh grade, yeah. This is the womb. Yeah. And then you, like, get, you get it again in high school, and it's just like, oh, it's a little more intent. Like, what? This is a conversation for another day, but like. I have another question for you. Yeah. Does this movie, okay, so being that in film, Americans tend to be fairly sexually repressed yes. or maybe or conservative. Yes. Does this movie play as hard as it did here overseas? Does anybody give a shit about this movie in France? Do they care? I don't know. Maybe they get it a little bit, a little bit more. It may be not, might not be as intense as they're, they're used to, but I don't know. Maybe they're maybe more open to it. I don't know. I don't know either. This is the American version of what this film would look like. Dude, if this was in Italy, you you saw a zombie, dude. Everyone's naked in yeah, this movie. The whole time, no one yeah, cares. Yeah. Well, yeah. I don't. You said you want to talk about Paul. Let's talk about Paul. Well, Paul sent us off on a boy, didn't he? Bunch of different crazy rabbit holes that we spent a good fun time talking about. Uh, but he's an interesting character to me because he's this guy that's like obviously a virgin, mm. pining for Jay for fuck. Since their years, first kiss, twelve years, fifteen years. I, I I don't even know, but yeah, he's looking for his window of. I'm gonna play a little clip here, but he cares about her. He wants a relationship with her, and now this opportunity, this great opportunity, has presented itself where he wants to take one for the team, and he she's just like, no, we're not going there. You could pass it on. 
did once. Shouldn't have. I could. No. I liked you too, you know. Why'd you pick Greg? Wow. I thought he'd be okay. He wasn't scared. Slept together in high school it wasn't a big deal. Again, you're right. There isn't. There is a lot of quiet, uncomfortable silence. Well, the people are figuring each other out, right? Paul's shooting his shot here. <laughs> so desperate, right? Mm-hmm. But I can see, I, I think he's desperate, but he also sees the window closing. and he's like, this is my shot. If I don't make a move now, like, when am I ever going to make a move? So I feel for him. <laughs> in every line, Yeah, I do too. <laughs> and every line from her is just another nail in his desperation coffin. Yeah. I mean, think about this. Why did you choose Greg? He looks like he looks. I didn't think he would be afraid. In yeah. Paul's mind, that's as, oh, so you thought I was afraid. Yeah, it is, she's emasculating him at the same time. Even worse. Yeah. It, the next line's even worse, yeah. which she says, plus we slept in high school. It wasn't a big deal. It wasn't even a big deal that I slept up in high school, but I still don't want to sleep with you, even though with him it wasn't a big deal. Like, you're not even worth not uh, even being a big deal. No, that's harsh. You're yeah. a pussy, and yeah. you're not even worth being a big enough deal. Yeah. You're not even worth being a, a little deal. Yeah. This Paul guy is just getting crucified yeah. or his masculinity. Yeah. He, Jesse, yeah. he's telling Jay, I want you so bad. Cause I don't think that I mean, maybe he thinks he loves her, but come on. Yeah. He wants her so bad that he's willing to take her demon away from her yeah. for the opportunity to get a singular role in the hay. And her response is, well, Greg, even though he never washed his hair, wasn't afraid, which you are. And secondarily, like, I've already been with him. So I'm ready for sloppy seconds the second time that will probably end up killing him where you've never even had glorious firsts or semi-glorious firsts. And yeah, I still don't want to sleep with you in any shape, form, or manner. So just keep sitting there and sucking, loser. If that's you or me, I'm leaving, man. Yeah, There's other fish in the sea, Paul. Yeah. Her sister. Kelly, <laughs> who's kind of better looking anyway. Yeah. Yeah. This God is, dang, man. Yeah, it's brutal. And um, real quick, Greg's demise. Don't want to skirt over that because that's where his mother comes, humps him, breaks. He's pretty sexed up, by the way. Break, breaks his neck. And I, I, I always forget about this scene in the film, actually. And do they bring out the David Lynch strobe lights in this thing? Yeah. And it's just like, oh, man, this is like right out of Twin Peaks. Yeah. <laughs> She knocks on his door and like you said, her, her breast is spilling out in that very see-through negligee and like his mom's kind of made up with makeup and her hair's done and that's like, messed up. Mounts her son, starts grinding on him and just shatters him. Oh yeah. <whistles> that's a whole nother level of dissection that we don't have time for, but there's something else is going on there too. And it's messed up. Yeah. It's bastardized sexuality on a perverted level now at this point. Mm-hmm. But yeah, poor Paul. I mean, he's really trying here. And at this point, uh, Jay has gone to this frat boat and probably, God, it's like, it's probably like the scene out of leaving Las Vegas where she just like goes and just has like four guys take a turn. Yep. 
and to buy herself some time. It goes back and you just see how weathered and tired she looks. Yeah. And I don't think eating because they, they did a good job of showing this uneaten sandwich and juice on the tray. She doesn't even want to eat. Yeah. She's that messed up by all this stuff going on here. And still no one, I think, fully believes her. Yep. But we're going to make a last stand against this demon because it's coming. Man, you got that naked guy on the roof. Like, again, in three weeks. Okay. You paying us enough to get in the in the shark, in the, the water with zombie makeup to fight a shark. You paying us enough to be naked in a wolf cage in a zoo. Man, are they paying us enough to hang out naked on a roof and we potentially fall off and die? <laughs> no. No way, man. Especially on that budget because it's like, we'll buy you lunch today. Oh, no, there's no insurance on this movie. Mm-hmm. No way. Oh, that's risky. And dude, this guy just do full frontal. Full frontal. Yeah. Yep, that guy needs a razor. That reminds me of Hereditary a lot too, because the mm. the old nudity in that film really bothered me too. The just the unglamorized, like you can really doll up someone and like, okay, this is your nude shot. Let's look great, right? Or you could do it this way and you're just like, yeah, this doesn't this is uncomfortable. This has seen hereditary where like they cut from day to night and it's just all the nudists yeah. out in the front yard. Like, dude, no way. I want no part of that. So they have a choice right now, and it's like what are we going to do against the it? Like we should maybe try and fight it and try and, you know, put up arms against it. And so they go into Detroit to like this abandoned, I don't think it's abandoned. I think it's just, it's a school. It's not open, right? Yeah, exactly. The swimming pool. What do you think about that conversation they had on the way to the swimming pool, which is where Yara, the friend is like, my mom would never let me go past eight mile into the city. Even if I went to the state fair with a friend and her parents, I still had to ask permission. Dude, man, what are we saying about Detroit there with all of that? Like how derelict and impoverished and dangerous that town is, especially around this time, too. We didn't even talk about the moment, too, which I think is the scariest moment of the movie, which is where Jay drinks from the faucet in her bathroom. She's like, you don't want to be doing that in Michigan. <laughs> exactly. Jesus. Uh, there's a whole other full podcast on the economic piece. Yeah. Right. I would say the socioeconomic piece of this film that he definitely plays with. Mm-hmm. We talked a little bit about it earlier with, you have a lot of time on your hands and not much money. So let's make babies because it feels good and it's easy and it's entertaining and blah, blah, blah. Uh, yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it's there. Mm-hmm. The other thing too, it's also, gosh, not letting anybody get a break on is, even if your parents, which these parents in this film are notoriously absent. Yeah. I think the one mom scene, they're sitting there drinking together. Yeah, Bailey's coffee, right? Yeah. yeah. So the parents are not involved. But even if you are a parent who pays attention and tries, I guess we see Hugh's mother too, but not really. It doesn't matter. These forces are far greater than even the most discerning or in this case, non-discerning alcoholic eye of any parent. You just, you can't fight it. In a weird kind of twist of old school, small town, getting stuck in a in a town, it almost kind of feels like these kids are getting stuck here too, yep. having to live out the same life as adults too. Oh man, that's... Let me ask you a question. Yeah. If you have the it problem mm-hmm. and you know you can just outwalk it, yeah. do you consider getting on a plane and flying across the country? 
Maybe, but then just you see, I don't know if the, it is stays the same there or just it could just manifest itself over there. I told you my solution, yeah, jokingly. Mm-hmm. Dude, you got to go to a brothel. <laughs> see what I, you're right. <laughs> I mean, I guess then the only person they're going to pay are the Johns, yeah, which is sort of unfortunate for them. But at least you could get like a twenty for one shot there, and it goes to like, and then it's going all over the place. Well, they, they pose that a little bit later, right? When they drive by the corner and there's those two prostitutes they there and they both the De- look at them. They pose the Detroit version of yeah. what that what these kids are able to do. Yeah. And they're kids. But, yeah, I'm with you. I, I, I thought about that, too. Like, if you put yourself at sea, but, man, who wants to live at sea for the rest of their life? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I don't know if this thing can survive water. It'd probably drown. But, yeah, put yourself overseas, but it still might just end up getting over there, mm. showing up there. Crazy. Crazy. Uh, it's just, I don't think there's an out. I don't think there's a good out. No. You keep having sex, but then, like, the un- underlying thing is, yeah, you're having a lot of risky sex with a bunch of weird, strange prostitutes. So, like, now you're getting real diseases on top of the Demonic demon disease. disease. <laughs> oh, man. They're like, yeah, this, is, this isn't a good scenario. <laughs> there's no win here. There's nothing no. glamorous about it. It's gruesome. It's brutal. Yeah, there's, this it's is a... It's traumatic. N- like, yeah, I this is, I don't... Very unappealing look at sex. Yeah, I don't want. I don't want any part of this. But this, <laughs> this get thee to a nunnery. Yeah, get thee to a nunnery, Ophelia. This pool bit is is pretty interesting, and they're they're really trying to do their best to like you know put eyes on this thing and see. And so they put all these appliances around the pool here so they can see if it picks one up. We can kind of see like the visage of where it's at, and then when it gets in there, we're going to try and electrocute this thing. I love that. That's their plan too. That is such a terrible plan. Yeah. She's already in the pool waiting for it. Yeah, this is like some other Stranger Things thing that they also ripped off, right? I mean, this is some Stranger Things plot. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So she's in the pool with electronically plugged in devices all around the perimeter of the pool that they hope... As bait, right? Yeah, so they're going to bait this thing into the pool and then kick all of these electronics into the water, assuming they're still stayed plugged in and retain their their charge, which they wouldn't Mm -hmm. because the cords aren't long enough. And that's the solution? Yeah, it's a shitty plan. It's shitty. And I'll also to remind you, at the beach scene earlier, we watched one of the demons take a slug right to the neck. Mm-hmm. And it went down for about three seconds and got back up and continued the pursuit. So I'm not really sure what you're up against, but I don't think even if this electrical plan were to work, that it's got a chance in hell of being successful. Again, to the same idea. Mm-hmm. Here you've weaponized this terrible thing. In this case, the story is sexuality and the ingenue or naivete of these kids having been weaponized with this and they are coming up with preposterous ideas on how to fix it sort of like after you have sex if you don't want to get pregnant if you do a handstand for 10 minutes you won't get pregnant that was actually a thing that's so stupid there's a great line in uh in knocked up where um (laughs) jason siegel tells seth rogan he's like you should know all the tricks. Like, like a girl, if, if you ejaculate in a girl and she's on top, you can't go because it's gravity. What goes up must come down. <laughs> <laughs> it's so stupid. Yeah. yeah. God, that movie's so funny. It is. Oh, geez. Yeah. Okay, do a handstand and you can't get pregnant. What? Gravity, same idea. Freaking science. <laughs> <laughs> Dear God. Yeah, don't be telling us that in sex ed. Yeah. <laughs> I remember I had a sheet in the sixth grade that Miss Hunefeld might my health teacher gave me and it was all the myths you shouldn't believe about sex. Oh. You can't get pregnant on the first time. And one of them was 
you can't get pregnant if you have if you do a handstand after you have sex. That is so. I've never heard that. That's so, isn't that absurd? So that's beyond absurd. Some poor chick doing a handstand naked for ten minutes. <laughs> I gotta do this. I don't want to have a. Baby. Leave me alone. Don't make me laugh. <laughs> I don't want to have a child. <laughs> oh my dear God! What are we doing to our kids, man? Uh, but yeah, this is. It takes a turn for the horror here. And and it, what do you think about it being her dad? I love it. Yeah. That's what he told her. Sometimes it disguises itself as your loved ones. Oh, because then. And what happened to dad? Did dad kill himself? Did he die in a drunk driving accident? Did Like what? <laughs> well, I mean, it would be a little bit contrived. Mm-hmm. But if it showed up as dad, did it hit dad? Yeah, maybe. Is dad part of it? Part of the infected? He's in the line. I hope not. But. I don't know. In this film, it might be true, right? Yeah. I mean, it's a very small, small portion of Detroit that we exist in, so everybody knows everybody. And the fact that she isn't seeing, like, her mother or her sister, she's seeing dad in this horrific state. I mean, that's that, there's something going on there. Mm-hmm. But again, he's we're not dissect or diverging for another five minutes to figure out what that means, right? I think that's why the film works so well. All this speculation on the genesis, the why, the how, the it, the film doesn't go there, right? It's all about fight or flight survival. Mm-hmm. And if we have enough time and are we smart enough to keep this thing at bay. And in their weird adolescent horrible plan, uh, they do enough to, I think, survive yeah. for the time being, right? Well, let's talk about that. So the thing jumps in the pool to get Jay. They have a skirmish and there's, there's a battle on the deck of the pool where they're trying to protect Jay, but none of them can see the demon. So short of throwing the sheet on the demon, they're kind of just shotgunning it, attacking the air, if you will. Eventually they though do get the demon in the pool and Jay's about to climb out when the demon grabs Jay's leg. And boy, that's tough too, because now she can't, get out of the pool so she's drowning and they can't see it in there. So Paul, luckily, 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 this is me with a gun, dude. My aim's not that good. Probably would kill Jay. I'm probably shooting her too. How the hell do you aim in the water? Cause it's rippling and you don't have a steady target. Oh yeah. Even if you were a good shot anyway, (laughs) but the the movie must figure something out. So yeah, he does hit, hit the dad caps, the dad in the head and down he goes. They, they get Jay out of the pool and then they don't see the dad anymore. It disappears. Mm Mm-hmm. Did they finish this thing off? They think. Maybe. Maybe. But then Jay and Paul finally agree. Yeah. Let's go with your plan, right? And so they get down to coitus. <laughs> and Paul, I just that scene of him rolling up to the two prostitutes on the side of the street, and he's like, okay, I'm going to give it to the two of them. And then they do God knows what with it. Oh, gosh. I mean, that's just like there's... It looks so cold, and he's in a beanie because of the weather. I mean, we're like in fall territory, right? I mean, the weather's changing. But then there's nothing unglamorous, the glamorous about that either, right? So they're hoping, yeah, we sent it there. Hopefully that does its thing, and maybe we killed it. And But that final shot, man, is just so good, right? Of the two of them, I guess maybe they've figured out a relationship. I mean, good for Paul. <laughs> good for Paul. <laughs> Did he get a win out of all this? I think maybe. Maybe they're together now. Is it a little graduate-like to you? A little bit. What now? Yeah, what next? Yeah. And then what's in the middle of them is a maybe it. 
man, that's that's a good final shot. It is. Yeah. Here's my question. Yeah. If a lot of people have a story that is similar to Hughes. I met this person at the bar and they gave me the gift that keeps on giving over and over and over. And God bless all of them for that. Like yeah. my heart literally goes out to them. Mm-hmm. That fucking sucks. Mm-hmm. So I'm not to be begrudging or make, make light of that. Cause that's a terrible, terrible thing. Yeah. But it happens. Another thing that often happens is couples end up together when they probably shouldn't have been together because of sex. And now she's pregnant shotgun. This is kind of similar, and I think there's two ways you can look at this. Number one, this might be the first mature sexual decision that anyone makes in the movie, because think about this. If Paul sleeps with Jay, then Paul's got it. But if they both stay loyal to each other, they could manage who has this. So if I'm going out of town for a week, then we'll have this before I go out of town. And you'll have a week where you don't have to worry. And you see what I'm saying? Like you could manage this. Give them a week to relax. <laughs> yeah. Which, yeah, honestly, it's very contemporary yeah. in a supernatural way to things that we all come to terms with in order to make the relationship work. Yeah. And that scene when they're walking down the street and anybody that passes them could be another it or maybe not. And here's the other thing too. Let's say it's not a demon STI, but just an STD or STI that yeah. you've given. Mm-hmm. I guess, thank God I don't have to make this decision. Yeah. I guess if the person you finally choose to be with has STIX and you're not going to be with anybody else, maybe it doesn't, I mean, insofar as like you don't get so sick that your stuff falls off or it becomes unfunctional. Yeah. yeah. Maybe it doesn't matter. Mm-hmm. Maybe. Mm-hmm. I, right? Man, the, 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 the finality of this film. No, you're absolutely right. I think that's great. It leaves a lot up for interpretation and a lot of what next, how, how did they fully defeat this thing? Where did it start? And this is where all the sequel stuff comes in, right? It's just like, yeah. you kind of want to know, like, well, where did this come from? And obviously it would be something stupid, right? I mean, when they do get to the answer, it's going to be so preposterous, we'll roll our eyes. And I think that's why it works in this film is we don't even even mess around with that. I can't think of many other horror films that have such a grand, high-concept idea that doesn't fully explain it, and it works to its advantage, right? Yeah. They think about Final Destination. I'm going to talk about a little bit about this in the nightcap going forward, but they go through all their powers to explain, man, why is death after us? Like, And it gets... It, Later down the sequel train, it gets so stupid, right? Yeah. So I think horror can either, you can either over-explain or you can under-explain. Sometimes maybe you want to under-explain your mm-hmm. idea. Yeah. And just fully believe that, like, what you what the threat is, fully commit to it. Mm-hmm. And you're still going to satisfy your audience. Yeah. Even though there's all this question marks about what this thing even is. I think that's why the discussion's so interesting, right? Yeah. But that's It Follows from 2014. Yeah, I think, yeah, $1 million budget, 23 or $30 million gross. So you're right. It didn't blow the doors off the barn, but, I mean, that's some profit. Pretty good, yeah. Some decent profit. And then I told you this director made another film that I haven't seen, but I should because it, like, fits my weird wheelhouse, which is Under the Silver Lake, which I believe is an A24 film with Andrew Garfield. Uh, I got to check that out. 
Because that's the last film he made. That was 2018. Like, is he just sitting on the next idea? Or is, I don't know, maybe he's hard to work with. <laughs> what has happened? Something's going on there. But I don't know. Maybe he's just really cooking up his next great idea. But before we get to the nightcap, Matt, what's your favorite tasting note? Or we've been doing favorite kill of It Follows. I think it's the girl that um, Jay meets in her kitchen, breaks the glass and comes in when she's the, the first appearance of It to get her. That's really terrifying, and it's shot really well. And then she pees on the floor as she's walking. Oh, God. <sighs> ah. It's, dude, that wet linoleum dude. was disgusting. Yeah. Dude, that was horrific. And the fact that it's linoleum, too, is so out of time for a movie made in 2014. That's so 1978. It fits that class system where they're Doesn't at, it? though, right? It yeah, does. They, they're not enough. They can't have tile because they can't afford it, but they can't have, like, hardwood floors because... They can't afford that either. So but also they, kind of trying. Trying. Yes. I know exactly what you're talking about. Dude, we had linoleum in my I know. house growing up. Uh, With a yellow refrigerator or a green refrigerator? Gray. Oh, you had a nice one. Yeah. I had a green, ugly green one. <laughs> was it a pea green? Yes, it was. Pea green. I forgot to mention that. Yeah, that peeing on, on you just see it trickling down. Dude, that it was, dude, that's horror city right there. Yeah. Speaking of peeing, I'm just kidding. Um, we talked a little bit about that. It's been an interesting morning. It has been. This has been a, a wild rye watch and just off the cuff conversation that Matt and I have been having. Yep. I got to go with the opening girl. Like, mm-hmm. what a tone setter. And I, lit- I had to turn and t- tell you, I was like, I think that's really good for the film going forward because we as the audience know what it is capable of, but none of our participants know. Not even Hugh, who's keeping this thing at bay. He doesn't even know what this thing is literally going to turn you into, like, a horrific, like, NFL injury victim, right? I mean, yeah. just like, you don't want no part of this thing. Uh, it's, it's, it reminds me of, like, the Kevin Ware injury. Do you remember that one, Matt? Ooh, oh, gosh. God. It looked like the compound fracture bone sticking out. Like, And this uh, is, like, that to the 10th power. Yeah, uh, It really lets you know three minutes in, this is something you don't want to mess with. Yeah, and I like that. I like that in our horror villain. Mm-hmm. Uh, give me a second here. But what is our? Oh my god! Moment of it follows. Hmm. Oh, I think it might be the scene in the hospital mm-hmm. where Greg decides it's his chance to get lucky, namely for. The moral implications of that, but secondarily, just how disgusting it is to make it in a hospital bed with someone that's in that state. It just, it, yeah, it borders on predatory, but it certainly delves full on in into disgusting. Dude, she's quasi concussed. She has a broken arm. Like, there, dude, there's nothing romantic about any of that. Right. The attempts at sterility in there and like, she's not going to have the bed sheets changed. Ugh, just the whole thing is gross. Yeah, I watched it too because he gets in bed in his boxers and then just like immediately gets down to thrusting. I'm like, he didn't even take them off. He's just going through the boxer flap. It's <laughs> just like. No foreplay, not anything. Yeah, just, what are we doing? We're just getting right to it. And for him, I mean, at that age, you're just like, yeah, let's get to business. But like her, I mean, like the look, then the, Robert Mitchell focuses on him, on her. Mm-hmm. She like looks to the left and is like, is this thing not just going to come burst into this door right now? What would we do? Yeah. There's no pleasure in any of that. That whole Except scene, for Greg, right? Right. <laughs> that whole sequence is very, very rear window Hitchcockian. Mm-hmm. 
all of the images that we see through the windows of that hospital. And as you get to the far left window, you see what we see with Greg and, yeah. and Jay. Yeah. I think I got to pick, speaking of Greg, I got to pick Greg's mom thrusting on him in a David Lynchian strobe atmosphere. Do that. I, I always forget about that five minutes in the movie where like it comes for him in a very nightmare on Elm street way where she's across the street and is like, Oh my God, it's coming for you. I need to come warn you. And she's too late. Right. And I gosh, like the, like two seconds of thrusting is enough for me to just give me the heebie jeebies and lights out for Greg. I mean, that's, that's a true, Oh my God moment, man. I need to like sterilize my mouth with some wellers. <laughs> it's rough. Hard to watch that. Yeah. Sterilize my eyes, right? <laughs> I watch with my eyes, not with my mouth. <laughs> yeah. Who's the master distiller on? It follows. I think Maka Monroe or Micah Monroe is terrific in this film. So understated and, and isolated and lonely and sad. I think it's a really solid performance. I'm going to give it to her. Good choice. No, it's good. Yeah, I kind of wait. I mean, I'm waiting for that moment where like people can maybe pay her more attention. We saw this film Watcher, right? It's on Shutter right now, and it's a very rear window-esque, and a film that actually, John Carpenter, this is great. John Carpenter made a TV movie with Lorne Hutton and Adrian Barbeau mm. just before he did Halloween. So just before he was, like, the big guy in Hollywood, right? Called Someone's Watching Me. And it's about this guy across the uh, apartment complex that's watching Lorne Hutton and stalking her and giving her a really hard time, right? Mm-hmm. And so watching Watcher, I was like, this is kind of like that movie too, right? I mean, it's just like the the threat's there, but like we don't know what the threat is. Is it Peeping Tom or is there like a sinister, murderous intention too? And that's where that film works really well, and she's really good in it. Yeah. Yeah. I'm going to go David Robert Mitchell. Robert David Robert Mitchell. I really look for that combo, right, of written and directed by that guy. We got it last week, right? Written and directed by John Landis, mm-hmm. where someone fully understands the story that they've spent a lot of time writing, mm-hmm. and then when they sit down to direct, fully in control of what they're putting out on the screen, right? Uh, and he did it. And I'm just, I guess I'm shocked that like he hasn't had more coming his way. Maybe he needs a Marvel movie. But again, you don't need it. because <laughs> Ask Josh Trank. Yeah, Marvel's a mess. Yeah. Werewolf by Night and whatever the fuck and She-Hulk and <sighs> this and that and whatever, Thunderbolts and Echo and who even knows at this point. Have you started Andor yet? No, but I want to. Are you sure? Yeah. Ooh, okay. <laughs> no, I don't. It is so slow. Dude, what? Yeah. It is so slow. Yeah. And mm. I think we're both in agreement on Rogue One being a pretty we like Rogue One, solid yeah. entry. And yeah. I, I don't know what it is about Star Wars. But Book of Boba was terrible. Yeah. And the only reason it was any good is because Mando showed up with Grogu in the last third and saved whatever that was and wasn't. What was your final consensus on Obi-Wan? Um, I guess the last couple episodes saved it a little bit for me, but it was a long way to get to those last two episodes. Mm-hmm. Uh, it goes back to the conversation we had with Thor Love and Thunder. Like, I hate the way Disney does children, and I hate the way Disney does women. And Leia was both of those in that film. <laughs> two for one, right? <laughs> But, man, Andor, the first three episodes, the the final 20 minutes of episode three are pretty solid. But, man, dude, it is really? a slog. I got to get back into it. I have to watch it, like, prying my eyes open. It's so boring. Jeez. It is. I don't. is. We're going to finish, I guess, because it's 12 episodes. 
And you're not diving into She-Hulk at all, are you? No. Oh, man. No way. I got to tell you, the, the biggest crime against that thing is just like, it's just, it's like, it's it's a, it's intentionally trying to be a comedy. It's not funny at all. So you've and, done some of it. I've done some of it, yeah. And it's just, it's so stupid. <laughs> it's just so stupid. The thing about it is, I know that Charlie Cox makes an appearance in there. Yeah. And. Yeah, in episode nine. But. You watch a nine episodes just to get to him. That's the thing we've talked about with them, right? Which is, and I've heard. Sorry, Matt. I'll let you. Yeah, yeah. I'll let you speak. But I've heard too that they're like also like this is also kind of like a weaker kind of neutered down Daredevil, and I was like, this is my fear, man. It's just like if you see the Netflix stuff is brutal yeah. and intense, and I, I kind of feared that this was going to happen. Mm-hmm. Right? We got to play that down for Disney Plus. So maybe we don't want Robert David Mitchell to get a Marvel film. No. That, that, at the end of the day, that's the answer, right? Right. Keep doing what you're doing. Keep doing what you're doing. Yeah. Um, excellent. How are you going to rate and grade? It follows. We have Rock Cut, Well, Call, Single Barrel, and Top Shelf. Where this, are you going for this one? This for me is Single Barrel. This Something that is this high concept and a brand new idea. Mm-hmm. We haven't seen debauchery around sex before in film, but the way that he chose to do it in this idea, and then not succumbing to, here's all the answers you need in order to put this pretty pink bow in it, because I want to keep it indie and a little bit. Yeah obscure and uh, irreverent to a certain degree. I think he made a masterpiece. Now this is you know, top shelf would be the highest rating, but this is single barrel with a bullet. This is single barrel and good. The uniqueness of this movie to me trumps it's excellent. It's excellency. But I can tell you honestly with the flight question we have tonight, this would be number one on my, on the answer to my flight. Yeah. This would be number one. It's want, not because we want can't to do see it. this. Yeah. This would be number one. Yeah. I mean, it's our, our nightcap question, which is coming. Yeah. Um, it's that solid an entry for me. But as solid as it is and as per, great as the performances are, and as much as this is a lesson in how it's okay to have quiet space on celluloid or digital celluloid, you don't need to have every moment filled with another talking head, which is excellent filmmaking. It's such a solid, solid idea and wickedly brave and unique. Yeah. Great film. Good, good, good rating. I think I'm with you. I think I can't quite give it top shelf because I don't know if I can put it in like that hereditary space of like horror masterpieces or even something with like the the Halloween and the and the thing. But for its uniqueness as a whole, as an idea and how it's executed, I think it's masterfully done on a shoestring budget, if anything. I mean, one million nowadays is not a lot of money, right? So... He's really going through all the rigmarole to deliver a competent film. And again, not getting lost in the weeds of having to over-explain the, everything about it. And I think that's why I've always liked it. It's, it exists in a gray that most films don't get to get away with. Usually you do have to explain for satisfaction purposes. But I think you end up satisfied watching this not knowing. I mean, watching two people trying to sur- or a group of people trying to survive a mysterious onslaught phantom slasher sex demon is very entertaining to watch. And I think that matters at the end of the day. I don't know. I think I'm, I'm, I'm with you. I don't know if I, I think I do want to see the sequel, but then again, if this is all we get, I'm also pretty happy with that as well. Yeah. I noticed a turn in horror around this time. And this was when we were, you know, we were writing a lot and, uh, really in that space. And, you know, this, you're next, the Babadook, the Invitation, mm-hmm. uh, Hereditary, 
the guests. There's a lot of films coming out around this time that are really stripping down the budgets and bumping up the ideas. And you're really seeing a lot of talent on the screen from a creative standpoint. And I really, really like that. This is a really good era of horror for me. Um, I like a lot of films coming out around this time, but single barrel for me, this is, uh, this is a great one. This is, this is a great rewatch. I love the, again, that soundtrack kicks ass. So to your rating, to your rating, to your single barrel, let's wrap this up with our nightcap. Okay, being that this was specced and adapted, I thought we'd stay in that space for the, the nightcap. And what I gave you was a time frame, so 2000 and beyond, your three favorite spec horror concepts. Go three, three, two, two, one, one. Yeah. Okay. Can I tell you that this was incredibly difficult to narrow down to three? Me too, man. I changed it five, six times even this morning before I got here. So I guess the rules being, okay, spec, you want to kind of explain that again for... Yeah, the spec thing's hard to sort of hard to say because if it's going to be true spec, that means not adapted from another source material. That's really steep hill to climb. But that was the general idea. Like this is somebody who had a vision, sat down, wrote it, and then the movie got made. That's the basic idea. Yeah, so we're not. Uh, it's not a sequel. It's, it's not a novel. Not a based on a book or any prior idea. It's not a reimagining or a remake. So like wholly original ideas. Yeah. All right, my number three, I alluded to it earlier, um, it's Final Destination. Mm -hmm. I think, again, another proto-spectoral slasher film where you don't really see the antagonist, it just comes for you. Man, they were able to milk that thing for another five films. And what it really became is how creative you can be in really setting up this Rube Goldberg of macabre and killing people in just the craziest ways. Uh, that first Final Destination is really great, and I think it has its roots, the writers of that, names I don't have off the tip of my tongue, but I know they're involved in the X-Files is where they got their start. Mm. So they come from that uh, Chris Carter bullpen, right? Yeah. That also turned out a Mr. Vince Gilligan, mm -hmm. <laughs> right? Yep. Uh, I got to tell you, the impact of the first Final Destination, it just never leaves me. Anytime I get on an airplane, I always check my little uh, seat tray, and man, there's a loose catch button right there, dude, I'm getting off that plane moving <laughs> i'm getting off yeah that's weird right i mean just like that airplane trauma of like it's already just like you put your hands in the air of engineers when you get on an airplane right but True. like that film really fed into that mm -hmm. and i think in a wholly creative idea death coming for you yeah. and you screwed up its plans and it's still gonna come for you love it how do you defeat that i mean it's like this film today so that's my number three good choice uh checking number three for me is del toro's the orphanage um this is a little bit fairy tale, I guess, but a lot because it's there's a tie to sort of Robin Hood. So, or uh, I'm sorry, Peter Pan. It's kind of breaking my own rules a little bit, but uh, you know, if you've ever been terrified by children, then you've never seen this film yeah. because this will do it to you. And what is one of the few movies that has a tragically happy ending to it? 
I don't want to get in too much because someday we are going to do that film on this show. That would be good in like a ghost uh, mm-hmm. postmortem <laughs> task. And again, the horror, the most horrific moment in that is the second act reversal, which is something that we'll find out was entirely in her control and the result of her actions. Yeah. Her being the protagonist. Yeah. Great choice. Thanks. My number two, Mr. James Wan and little franchise he helped set up here. Now, Matt, I can't go with the Warrens because that would be based on a real existing entity. Of course, I'm going to go with Saw. Yeah. Again, that first Saw film in its foundation is such a good idea. Here's two guys chained in a bathroom. They don't know why they're there. And now they have to play some horrific game in order to escape and what you eventually find out is your antagonist is this guy who's making people punish themselves for how horrible they are in real life. Mm-hmm. The adulterer, the guy who's got an insurance scam, the girl who's an addict. It's a life lesson. And man, I can't tell you, just like the last five minutes of Saw are just like pitch perfect, uh, twist ending, spec screenwriting gold. And man, it was it was the introduction to the world to Mr. James Wan. Uh, and it set up a franchise that I have a very love-hate rate relationship with, but that's a great idea in its first form. Brilliant idea. Yeah. Sold on pitch alone. Him and Lee Winnell, they were the co-writers mm-hmm. on that. Yeah. Good, 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 good. Yeah. Number two for me, paranorm- Paranormal Activity, yeah. the first one. I kicked that one around a little bit too. We did a whole show on it, so you can go back and re-listen and watch or re-listen to that. Uh, yeah, that's, that's spec gold on a micro-budget at a time that the franchise or the genre that it was playing in was pretty well exhausted. Yeah. I think everybody had just about had it with found footage at that point. And, this and it kind of brought it back again, right? Kind of did. <laughs> kind of did. So I'm going to go with that. Great choice. What do you like? Is it the simplicity of it? Is it, I mean, we have both relatable character or like characters we can get behind, but then also like Micah is just like, dude, we hate his guts. I mean, he's just the worst. So he is, yeah. that's a little bit of both. Yeah. And a slow burn, too. I mean, they really take its time to really amp it up. Yeah. As I get older, the more I like my horrors, the less I see in it. Mm-hmm. The more you give me the space to worry and think about it, the happier I am with horror. Yeah. So that's these two movies, Today and, and Paranormal, for sure. Great example. My number one, I wonder if we have the same number one here. I bet we but do. It's one of the great introductions, not into horror, but into cinema. Uh I can't think of a better spec idea here. I'm going with Mr. Ari Aster and Hereditary. Yeah. Is that your number one? <laughs> okay, let's talk about it. Where are we ranking his film debut amongst the all-time great debuts like Reservoir Dogs and Citizen Kane and 12 Angry Men? I mean... Last House on the Left. I mean, it's a horror film, but if we just think of cinema and forget genre... Man, this one has to be top five for me. I mean, this is an introduction unlike any other that I've seen in the last 22 years, right? Yeah. Uh, yeah, I don't know if I could set it up any better than what you just did. Uh, boy, where to go with that? Because I don't want to give too much weight because that is for sure one that we have to do. And we've talked about it a lot, so I don't want to spoil that. I think for me, as much horror as I've seen in my life, it takes a lot to move the needle post viewing. Like oftentimes during the viewing, I'm bothered or troubled with the movie. And then when it fades to black, I can pretty much leave it in the theater and it was a good experience and so be it. 
this movie stayed with me for a week plus. Not only just, honestly, the most shocking surprise thing I've ever seen in movie in my entire life happens in that movie, which is the decapitation scene. But the way that it ends and what it leaves you with. I thought and pondered and troubled and read about that film without really any ambiguity on the ending. You know what happens. Like the, the movie's done. Yeah. But I just wanted more, not out of pleasure, out of like, I think a weird perverted sickness. Um, that film's a crazy hybrid. Uh, we, we saw it together. And I don't know if you remember this. This is why we got to do the movie one day and we'll wait for his third movie to come out with, with Joaquin Phoenix. Got to be coming out soon. Mm-hmm. There was some people a few mm-hmm. rows in front of us. And, you know, you and I have had some interesting experience walking, watching films with audiences and altercations and confrontations. And these people were just like talking during the movie, kind of being obnoxious. And then, like, towards the end of the film, they kind of shut up a bit. And, like, yeah. I think you and I kind of came to this interesting hypothesis that they were just, like, really troubled by the film they were watching, right? Mm-hmm. Trying to make light of the horror. Yeah. And I don't think I've ever seen that before, right? Usually they stay obnoxious until the end. But, like, once that film hits Act 3 and we're in, like, full ghoul territory, they were quiet. And you could just tell the unease in the theater that night was just like, man, everyone's really bothered by the shit going on, right? It shut up the sarcastic laugh at every yeah. moment in the film. Yeah. It shut them up, shut them down, and it was, you could have heard a pin drop in that theater. It's crazy. You can't even label that movie because it, like, it's kind of a demonic possession movie, but it's also kind of like a cult movie and then this like family trauma movie. I mean, it's working on so many layers that they all just gel together so well. And man, freaking hell payment at the end of that. I can't wait till we, till we talk about that film, but... Mm-hmm. It's number one for a reason. It's it's one hell of a debut. Yeah. And then arguably, I think Ari Aster follows it up with a film that I think might be better. Really? I think so. That's just, Mars better. That's just what I th- maybe think about his style and like how he makes these movies that just really rub someone the wrong way. But man, that's what I look for sometimes. You know, as you bring up Midsummer, just to sort of sidetrack here for a minute. Mm-hmm. We saw Don't Worry Darling on yeah. Thursday night. Francis Pugh Jesse is, I mean, really close. She's amazing in that film. Well, you know where we're going to get to see her shine. Oh, so, so think about this. So some films that have come out this year. So seen Florence Pugh and then Elvis with Austin Butler. Yep. Man, Danny Villeneuve is just playing with like the King's Ransom at this point because they're both in Dune Part 2. Mm-hmm. And then the, both of them are going to slay in that thing. I hope. On top of everything else that was good about that original film. Yep. I hope. I'm with you, yeah. That's, yeah. She's she's again, close, right? She's no, right she's, there, right? She's close. She's yeah. really, really close. Yeah. She's been in a... There was something else I saw her in. Um, no, Black Widow we saw. That, that movie was a disaster. But it wasn't her fault. It was everything else, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Uh, she was in something else I saw that was kind of sleepy that was also really good. I don't know why it's escaping me at this point, but mm. great choice. I can't wait until we do Hereditary one day, and I, I hope we follow that we do the whole thing. That, Midsommar, and whatever part three is in this Ari Aster trilogy, yeah. whatever it is. 
Great choice. I'm glad, you, I'm glad you picked It Follows. I knew we would talk about all the crazy things in this film for almost two hours. Mm. Um, but now it's, you know, it's spooky season. It's time to just kind of let loose a little bit, not get so intense about how we just like analyze and just have a little bit of fun. And this is something that I love that we do all the years. And it also helps keep, uh, help keeps me on track of how long we've been doing this. So Matt, it's time to do the fearsome four. Wow. Yeah. Can you believe that? Yeah. I can't. Yeah, it's the only way I'm able to keep track of. Yeah, we're at number four, so four years in, right? Mm-hmm. And I can't wait to talk about these next four films, primarily because it's my favorite Friday, the 13th film. It's Nightmare on Elm Street at the top of its game. The four we'll talk about with that one was the biggest earning one of the series. So we were at like Freddy Fever, right? Mm-hmm. Late 80s Freddy Fever, directed by Rennie Harlan. Mm. <laughs> Jeez. Yeah. And then in Halloween, we get back to form and we kind of forget about the season of the witch and we bring Michael Myers back into the fold in a sequel that I actually think is pretty good. Are we so, going to do all three of these together? We should. Yeah. Yeah. Let's come over. We'll, we'll do it. And yeah, just kind of like, we'll just kind of have fun and just get into the world of these movies. And they're not masterpieces like some of these other like hereditary or anything, but man, there's just some fun stuff to talk about in some of these and can't wait to talk about some of these characters and yeah. It'll be a lot of fun. And yeah, the fearsome four. So Friday the 13th, part four, the final chapter, nightmare part four, the dream master and Halloween Four: the return of Michael Myers. Be our next three weeks. I think it's going to be a lot of fun. I do too. Excellent. Well, you got that coming to you. Uh, Until then, cheers. We got to get going. I'm going to go, I'm going to go drink some water uh, after watching this. Uh, And then, yeah, I'm not going to be drinking from the faucet like Jay was in that one scene. Make sure you put a condom on the faucet before you drink from it. <laughs> Apparently, there's enough holes where you still get some some liquid to come through. Yeah. But at least they will keep. They're you safe. microscopic. They'll 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 keep me well nourished, though. Exactly. Excellent, everyone. We'll see you all next week. Have a good week, everybody. We'll see you in the dark. Thank you for listening to Rye Smile Films. Be sure to subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Podbean, Stitcher, TuneIn, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And be sure to leave us a rating and a review. While you're there, it really helps out the show. And for Rye Smile Films merchandise, go to tpublic.com. It follows as property of Two Flints, Animal Kingdom, and Northern Lights Films. And no copyright infringement is intended. Until next time, cheers. Jeez.